This is episode 319 of the AWS podcast, released on June 30th, 2019. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lisher here with you. Great to have you back. And we are recording another semi-live episode because we're recording it live, but you're not hearing it live here at the Sydney Summit. Hello, audience. Hey. And I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Glenn Gore. He's all the way from his new home in Seattle. You've hey, come Simon. home again. How are you going? I have. It's always good to be back home in Sydney. It is good to have you here. Now, we love to have you on the podcast because uh, if there's someone that we can riff about technology with, it's you. Yeah, <laughs> always sounds dangerous. It's always fun. In fact, we were talking in a in the previous episode about um, actually no, in a, in a Twitch stream today about the fact that we did an episode where we refactored an application using only our words. Yeah, it was a sentimentizer. <laughs> sentimentizer, exactly, which was fun. So, what I thought we'd do today is have a bit of a chat about architecture, uh, in particular, what we're seeing working for customers, what's not working, and some other topics. So, you know, you, you travel the world in your role meeting with a bunch of customers at a lot of different scales. And if you think about sort of what's, what's working and what's not working, and I'll, I'll start because I'll give you a breather because you ran over here, <laughs> is I, I see a lot of what I would call premature optimization. And, uh, and, and this is, thank you for the laughter there. Um, and this is around things like saying, well, I'm going to build this as if I've got a million users, but I've only got 10. Or um, I'm going to build in the most distributed, robust thing I can think of, but I don't actually need it yet. Now, this is a trade-off, of course, between not doing it soon enough and ending up with a whole lot of tech debt. What are you seeing in terms of that balance and, and what's working and what's not? Premature optimization, uh, or what we used to call it, is just over-engineering it. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> true. Gold screwdriver? Gold screwdriver. Well, yeah, that's where uh, you'd be charged to... Uh, <laughs> that's true, that's true. You know, increase the number of microservices. Yeah, we won't mention the, uh, <laughs> the company there. Uh, but, you know, it's over-optimization, over-engineering is actually a, a big issue, particularly for startups when you, when you think that you have a very finite set of resources when you start. And, and the, what I mean by that, it's kind of time, cost, and and uh, people. And if you waste that time optimizing for a load that's never going to come, you're sacrificing your ability to experiment and try different feature sets that is actually more important. And I'd say it's more important at the start for a startup to experiment and get the feature set right for that kind of minimal viable product and what's resonating for their users, even if it's really rough. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, use monitoring and telemetry to try and work out as they do start seeing, okay, we've got the feature set right, that's now attracting users, where is the low-hanging fruit? And then you start optimizing really quickly. And often, you know, the, the, two, the two mistakes actually go hand in hand. One is, as you said, you know, that premature optimization. But the second one is no monitoring in the first yes, place. Yes, yeah. And, you know, know, we'll add it later. Like. Yeah. Well, now we're busy and we're trying to, you know, keep the Titanic afloat. Yeah. And we have no idea where the issue is. Yeah. And so then even worse that, uh, than over-optimizing it is we start optimizing and guessing and thinking, yeah. okay, I think it's this component. Yeah. And you, you spend time, you know, sometimes lucky if it's hours, sometimes it can be days, you release it, no difference. Mm. Well, I think it's this. Mm. And you just kind of, it's just a guessing game. Just guessing. It's, it's interesting you talk about the, the monitoring side of things because one of the things I also see with monitoring is this um, uh, appeal of the average and as I like to say to people, averages are very average mm-hmm. in terms of their usefulness. And, and you, know, you, you know from all the work with the service teams that you do, 
that we focus obsessively on, you know, the 99th percentile. Or, or I saw I saw a, a COE that was talking about the 99.9th percentile yes. where they saw – they didn't see any anything going wrong at 99th percentile. So as far as everyone's concerned, oh, it's all fine. But when they looked at 99.9, something was going on there. I think that's – we need to remind people that's where you should be looking because it, it feeds into everything else. Yeah, and just to, you know, if you have a background in statistics, maybe 99th percentile means something. But I actually find – a lot of people, they don't really understand it. So to give you a, a concrete example of what Simon's uh, referring to is if you look at, for example, uh, you know, just to keep it really simple, we've got a digital website, what's the average page load time? Yeah. Let's say it's uh, you know, 200 milliseconds, for example. Well, when we look at the 99th percentile, though, we want that to be as close to the average as we possibly can. But if it's jumping out and saying, actually, 99th percentile, or even 99.9, there's like a 2.6 second load time. Yeah. That's where you want to start looking, digging into what happened on that single transaction. And this actually gets really, really hard when you start, uh, again, scaling up the load. You can have millions of transactions going through a system every minute or even every second in the case of you know, big ad serving companies, for example, some of the gaming uh, companies that are measuring every single event in a game. So how do you find that single transaction? And then how do you work out what was that single transaction touching and what could be dozens upon dozens of microservices all with their own data stores behind them? What was it that caused it to blow out? Uh, and what I find is when you, when you identify that and you actually say, okay, it's this one microservice, you often are finding things like race conditions yeah. or a piece of brittle architecture. And when you fix that, the whole platform's resilience and availability actually increases dramatically. And that's why we have this obsession around the operational excellence within AWS around this 99th percentile, 99.9. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is an obsession. And it's, it's funny because I remember when I joined Amazon and, and that sort of was discovering this for the first time through some of the SDEs, the software development engineers that we have. And they were explaining to me, and I was trying to understand, why are you obsessing about this, the, you know, the, the 1% that's, yeah, it's nasty and bad, but you know, the, the other 99% is good. And, and he was saying that what happens is by optimizing the 99th percentile, everything else actually gets faster too, often as a side effect. And so you just see, like, I've been reading some some updates recently where some services have, have reduced latency by like 85%. Yeah. By just a, it's, it's not uncommon, is it? No, it, it happens. And you're right. It's just this continual optimization. Sometimes they're, they're I wouldn't say they're easy optimizations, but they're big bang ones. Like where yeah. we go, okay, we can refactor the application, we can see that you know there's an architectural design element that's mm -hmm. not working quite right. And that can get you a big saving. But often it's actually just the sum of little tweaks here and there that you know 1% here, another half percent here. But as you start adding them up pretty quickly, they can add up to, to pretty large amounts. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's often on the edge cases, it's when things start to go wrong that things can spiral out of control. You know, if you having done a lot of operational reviews <laughs> myself after incidents, I've never seen, actually, I've never seen a, a COE where it was just one thing. Yeah. yeah. It's always a domino effect. Yep. It's like somebody did this and because this other thing wasn't quite tuned right, it escalated and that tricked the third thing and the fourth and thing. thing didn't so, have an alarm. It's actually and, yeah. seven things in a row yeah. that all ended it up being... It could never happen. It could never <laughs> happen. That's right. But it did. Uh, well, it's interesting. You also talked about particularly with startups, but I think with any organisation that, that need to be able to make change in the environment and in the technology. And I often come across what's known as the sunk cost fallacy, which says we've invested so much in this platform or this approach or this feature that we can't give up now. Like, you know, we're, we've, we've given so much, whereas really the the rational thing to do is to say, no, this is the wrong direction. We need to cut it, cut it be. Have you seen any good hacks or approaches culturally to just say, you know, we're willing to give this up 
and do better? Yeah, I mean, again, when you think about it, uh, there's a, in the innovators dilemma, they talk about the embedded player dilemma, which is, again, this is what made us successful, why change it? Uh, actually, in the keynote this morning at the uh, AWS Sydney Summit, we talked about creating tomorrow, and I talked about, you know, one of the insights that I've seen across teams is when you get a team together and you're really talking about change, people seem to naturally gravitate and spend more time on what we're going to lose. You know, yeah. we know this structure, it's been well tested. It's familiar. It's stable. Mm. You know, these are almost like danger words I hear now. And they go, it's stable. We haven't touched Don't it touch for a it. while. Uh, <laughs> so really? You should go poke it with a stick and see what happens. Uh, Versus what is it that you're going to gain? And I'm actually a big, big believer that when you know, systems are constantly being looked at, reviewed and modified and changed, it forces you to have really good behaviors around it. It's good muscle memory as a developer mm. around. We know, for example, that uh, when we saw DevOps first coming in, for example, so you might remember, you know, when you're only doing a release once every six months to that critical system, how practiced are you really at it? Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's a very manual process, normally done at 1 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday, no one else is around and things go wrong and you haven't practiced it. Versus if you start saying, I'm going to make a change every hour, actually the whole teams are going to be making changes multiple times per hour. You put systems in place, you put mechanisms in place, you practice it and it just becomes second nature. It's, it's interesting because I think there's a, a big mental barrier there and a, and a cultural barrier in some places around doing that because to, to, to exercise that, that muscle and to do things like you know, chaos engineering and testing in production and all that good stuff and pulling things out when they shouldn't and game days is another good technique – you have to be really willing to do that and teams that are sort of high performing and super successful are the ones that are willing to do that uncomfortable hard stuff but most aren't sort of open to that or, or wouldn't say open to that but not supported maybe by senior leadership to do that or don't quite understand that or the benefits you can get from doing yeah, it. You've got to look at where that reluctance comes from yeah. and, and sometimes it's a case of both sides. So, you know, let's let's talk really simplistically. You've got the engineering, the developers, you know, the tech people, yep. and then you've got management. <laughs> management. You know, often the two sides blame each other, right? Management's kind of saying, I don't have a skilled enough tech force because things are breaking and they don't want to touch things and, uh, you know, the, the agility is, is too slow. Yeah. And then the engineering department's kind of blaming management, saying you don't trust us, you're not funding in us. Uh, we want to make these changes, but you're making us jump through hoops. Yeah. And that can be really hard to change because you now have two teams who aren't really talking to each other. And if you want to get the benefits that you were talking about, you have to find a way to short circuit. And that's actually uh, quite often a way that I'm engaging with some of our customers is actually getting to reconnect again. It's almost like a marriage council <laughs> and kind of saying, hey, what they really mean when they say this is, is that. Um, and this actually kind of bleeds over a little bit into technical debt sometimes yeah. in that what we as engineers and uh, technical people think of technical debt is often very different to what the management teams are thinking is technical debt as well. And often the two never actually sit down and just say, hey, we should just kind of align notes. And it sounds really obvious when you say it, but if you think about it, when was the last time you sat down with the business and actually said, hey, here's what my priorities are in terms of what I would like to pay off if I could you know, just say have a blank check, what would yours be? Yeah, and yeah. often there's going to be a pretty yeah. big difference as what those very two are. different. It's it's funny. I I reflect on the first project I ever worked in my career back in the day, and I remember I'd, I'd been on that project for maybe six months, and we dropped a release with a whole lot of features and functions. And then I remember going to my my management and saying, you know, this 
this is a dumpster fire of an architecture we've got going on here. We need to do an architecture release. You know, we need to spend the next three months just fixing the architecture. Made nothing but sense to me. And I got a hard no. Yeah. It was like, we're not doing that. I'm like, but, but how can you not do that? I was like, well, it doesn't add any value from a business standpoint just because the under, underlying makes you feel better. And I couldn't understand it at that, at that stage. And I, I now understand the tensions more, but it, it is a constant tension that we face. It is constant tension. And, you know, it's not – I don't blame anyone side. No, no. It's very much both have ownership in this and it's, you know, our role as, you know, technology professionals to actually sit down and explain that. And if they're not getting it, it was actually at, our, it was actually at the Public Sector Warriors uh, in, here in Sydney on, on Monday and there was a really good question about, well, what happens when you're being forced by management to push through releases and they're willing to skip things like security checks and yeah. other things because they just want the release out? And... Uh, you know, we had a really good chat about it and ultimately what it came down to was I think sometimes we have issues as, as you know, engineers escalating and actually being comfortable and saying, okay, my boss has said no to this, but I know that security is key to the trust that my organization has with customers and I'm actually going to escalate it outside of my management chain. Yeah, and hard to I do. Think that is, <laughs> it is hard to do. Mm. And look, in some companies, unfortunately, that can mean uh, you know, you might not have your job. Yeah, but I think yeah. sometimes you have to do what is right. Uh, and even as hard as that is, by doing that, it may not work the first time or the second or the third time. But hopefully as you start escalating, people start realizing, hang on a second, there's a pattern of behavior here. Yeah, yeah. Now you, you touched on something interesting, which is, which is career. And this is something I wanted to spend a little bit of time on because youthful as you look, uh, you've been around for a while. And yet here you are in this still somewhat, somewhat, somewhat say nascent, constantly growing, constantly evolving world of cloud. It would have probably been very easy for you to sit back and say, you know, I've built large companies, large infrastructures. I can use those skills for the term of my natural life and earn a good living and call it done. How do you keep up to date? How do you accept the modernity of things that change in the IT environment and contrast that with the fact that we love fashion and the coolest new thing, yet some of the old principles or the fundamentals that you've learnt the hard way many times are also important to keep. How do you get that balance of the new and the, the old, if I can put it that way? Yeah, and it is a balancing act. Um, I'm lucky, I guess, that I am, I am actually incredibly curious about technology and understanding how and why it works. Uh, you know, I love, I actually love, I love well-engineered systems. Uh, you know, I'm kind of attracted to it in a weird way. It's <laughs> strange saying it out loud. Yeah, let's not go. Uh, but, you know, it's, the new stuff is great and, and I love playing with it. But a lesson I learned early in my, early in my career was you don't get to play with the good stuff if you don't get the foundations right. Yeah. And so you have to go back and look after the old things. And it's actually, it's a balance. Mm -hmm. It is not that you can purely focus on the new things. If you do, you are just leaving a red hot mess everywhere uh, because you're not cleaning up after yourself. Or even worse, you're letting other people deal with your mess. Uh, and that's just not, you know, to be blunt, right. Uh, or you just focus on what you already have and you stop innovating. Right? So the two extremes are not right. You've got to find that optimal balance. And again, this is why... Uh, in the, again, in the keynote, we talked about technical debt and the definition of it and saying technical debt doesn't always mean the old systems. You know, you're yeah. going to have quite old software that's running and if it's actually been well-architected, has a well-defined API and it's not holding you back in the innovation you're wanting to do, there is no debt there. Mm. I mean, yeah, it'd be fun maybe to refactor it and get it on the latest serverless-based architecture, 
But again, that goes back to your, you know, kind of over-engineering that we yeah. started off with. Yeah. What's the benefit of doing that? Plus, I guess the, co the contrast is, is I could code you some technical debt right here, right now, if you wanted me to. Right. Debt, debt, tech, tech debt is not old. It's no, absolutely not. Stuff I've, that's not doing the right thing, is it? <laughs> I've seen customers using Lambda and, you know, the, the best serverless, you know, all, all, the, all the, whiz, the buzzwords that you want to hear. And it's absolutely the wrong architecture right then and there. Uh, but, you know, it, it does. It's this curiosity. It's, you know, I spend a lot of time reading. I spend a lot of time building still. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. you know, can I have a goal of myself, two or three technologies a week uh, learning? Wow. Don't get me dead. It's not at a deep level. Mm. You know, it's just like just playing around with it and seeing it. Uh, I'm very lucky. I get to, uh, you know, work with, with some great people, yourself, Simon, and others across the AWS team and across the industry. So I'm always asking them, like, what are you working on? What are you excited by? And you'd be surprised how often I get the similar answers back. Like, you know, we're doing this in AI or computer vision. It's just a, a one of the areas that keeps coming back yeah, again and again yeah. and people are just like, hey, did you know you could do this? Um, and so that's just part of that osmosis of information coming in. Oh, I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 I think it's a key to a, a vibrant long-term career to, to maintain that curiosity. It's easy to be derailed from that. You end up in spreadsheets and PowerPoints and, and arm wavy. And it's funny how many really competent uh, experts I get to to meet who have just lost their ability to get and get on the get on the tools and cut some code and when they get back to it they're so invigorated again like it, it gets the creative juices going yeah and it's uh, I mean we can this is a, this could be a whole other chat about <laughs> how you shift from being an individual contributor as a developer engineer yeah. as you start getting into team leadership management and you know kind of manager of managers leader of leaders. But, you know, I've operated in both modes for quite a while and you might even remember, you know, when we were working together in the mm. same teams, mm. at the start of the year when we'd get our head count, you know, what was the number one priority? It was hire the head count before anything else because if you didn't get in front of that curve and get the resources in place knowing that they're going to take six to nine months to onboard, you're just going to drown. Nothing else happens. And you're just caught in this horrible reactive loop where you're just reacting all the time. And that's what happens when you say managers go, oh, I'm a manager now and I'm in Excel hell and yep. you know, I'm in management meetings. It's because you're reacting. Mm. You haven't put great leaders underneath you to actually take some of that load off you so that you can be more strategic in what you're looking at, spend time doing skip levels with your staff and being close enough to what the business is doing but also how your team is and looking at, you know, around the corner or into the future a little bit and saying, you know, what is my team going to need tomorrow so I can start planning and asking for it today? Yeah, that's a good good point. And even, I think, uh, getting getting that time to, to kind of spike new ideas and try the technologies yourself so that when you're having those conversations, those sometimes deep technical conversations, you can call bulldust when you need to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the experience part. But the, the, the opposite is also true. Don't be afraid when you become a leader and more senior you can't make mistakes. Often That's you see true, that senior yes. people go, well, I've got to have the perfect answer. I've got to be right all the time. You know, throw out what you know is a wrong idea because you may learn one of two things. One, you'll get some really great feedback. You kind of see who in your team is actually, you know, thinking about it. Or two, you may get even a worse answer, which everyone just agreed with you. Mm. That is a very dangerous, a dangerous thing situation. when you're going, hey, I know. And I know they know yeah. that yeah. what I've just said is wrong. And nobody is stepping up it's and kind of having the backbone to actually challenge back and say, hey, Glenn, that was just a silly idea. Yeah. Uh, and again, you see that when culture starts becoming a bit sick. Yeah, it's true. And I think, I think that, that recognition of that you're not always right is really important. One of the, the leaders I've, I've dealt with in the past at Amazon that used a saying that I really liked, which is he would say, uh, this is my decision, but I reserve the right to be wrong. Yeah. And it's true. It's like yeah. you're not going to get it right all the time. Um, probably the most important question of this episode is uh, tabs or spaces. 
You know what? If you, <laughs> if you care about that, you're looking at the wrong. Thing. <laughs> uh, you know, use use an auto link or something. Like <laughs> Vi or Emacs? Vi. <laughs> See, I don't. I, knew, I don't have eleven fingers. I knew there was something it. I could get you on. Um, let's open up for a quick round of any questions that we might have in the audience uh, for Glenn. You can ask Simon a question too. <laughs> oh, uh, no, that's Glenn. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, what do you think about this concept that? You know, show me a startup is a bunch of technical debt, and show me a startup without one, and the one without one is a startup that failed, that like missed the market and uh, didn't incur enough technical debt. Yeah, I think you're you're kind of bringing a good point. Is if you have zero technical debt, you're you're surviving by luck. To be honest, you know, it's it's very hard because you're you're over engineering all the time. You're getting it absolutely perfect. Um, you want to have, again, this, architecture is often about balance, right? There is no perfect architecture a lot of the time. I'm saying, you know, 99.999999. It's trade-offs. It's trade-offs. It's about what is your unique set of requirements that you're trying to architect to and what's the optimal design to meet those requirements. And it is. It's absolutely trade-offs to it. And so as you make those trade-offs, some of those trade-offs will result in technical debt. As you go through that, so I've never run into any customer where they don't have technical debt. Uh, they may think they don't, <laughs> but when you start asking them questions and saying, "Well, you know, what is it that you want to do next, or where do you see the business going?" and then you start having, you, they haven't thought about it, and then you, once you start asking those questions, they realize actually we want to go down this direction. Well, how is this system going to enable that? Well, it, it won't. Right. Well, that's a piece of technical debt right then and there. I think also a feature of that is is kind of what we touched on when we did the refactoring together is that the technology base changes all the time. So what is best of breed at the time you built it isn't yeah. later on and, and that's where the debt creeps up. And uh, I think the, the question is well made which is there's you've got to figure out what your tolerance for that debt is. Yeah, I mean carrying, carrying debt's not a bad thing. You know, we do it in our personal lives yeah. all the yeah. time. Uh, it's when it gets out of control yeah. that it becomes bad. Exactly, exactly. Any other questions? One more question over here. Uh, you said you learn maybe three technologies a week. Do you have to watch yourself or put any guardrails about how much effort and time and headspace you put into learning new things? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there have been times. I remember <laughs> to give you an idea. Once uh, last time I got my eyes checked, the optometrist was like, "Do you use a computer much?" And I was like, <laughs> And they said, well, how, how often on average would you say you spend on a computer screen? And I was like, this is going to be an embarrassing answer. All the hours? And I was like, <laughs> like 12 to 16 hours a day. Okay. What's the, what's the longest time you've spent in front of the computer screen? I was like, about 36 hours. Uh, and it is because I do. I, I go down this rabbit hole of a new technology and before I know it, I haven't eaten, I haven't slept. And, you know, it's like now I, you know, something's not going to go well for me, either personal life, uh, you know, my partner's going to be yelling and screaming at me, uh, or, you know, I haven't done other things that I've done. Um, so you have to be, put guard rise on. This is what I said, it's all about, for me, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting having Rob Smedley from Formula One today actually talking about the importance of generalists versus specialists. Uh, and so what I've had to learn is when it, what depth am I comfortable with and knowing when to stop because you could. I could absolutely just keep going down that rabbit hole. But I'm quite comfortable now. And even sometimes that means sometimes I pick up a technology and it's unfortunately maybe happening a little bit more often than it used to where I actually go, 
you know what, I'm not getting it. It's okay. I'll just put it away for a while and I'll come back to it again. And because I just don't have the time or I'm not in the right headspace to focus on it. So it does does happen pretty frequently. Yeah, there's, there's no such thing as perfection, but I think if you're not if you're not carving out at least some time for that, that's when you start to feel that that gap creep up on you. And it creeps up ever so slowly and then you're yeah. like, wow, I have no idea what people are talking about or what well, What's interesting, because I've been doing this for, for a while, this kind of uh, learning things. Anyone, anyone here in the audience uh, like a runner or, or like going to the gym and fitness on a regular basis, yeah? Uh, do you get kind of a bit cranky when you don't do it and you kind of feel a bit antsy? That's me with learning now. So yeah. If, I, if yeah. I actually are on the road, even this week, you know, it's been a pretty big week of rehearsals and uh, doing the keynotes and working with customers, but I haven't learnt a lot this week so I'm already feeling like a bit like oh, I just saw this uh, you know release about technology X I'd mm. just give it a bit of a, a try and see what it is uh, luckily I've got a long plane ride out of well, here that's what I'm thinking uh, yeah that, that plane ride can uh, can be good although the lack of internet sometimes can, can catch you although it can be a good thing too it can be a good thing but uh, I cache a lot of stuff on my laptop <laughs> <laughs> the cache meister excellent Glenn thanks so much for joining us again on the podcast thank you Simon always a pleasure Likewise. And thanks for listening. We'd love to get your feedback at at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.